아가 생길 기다 꼭 버티낼 기다 반드시 헤쳐나갈 기다 A child is coming. She will thrive, and through her, her family will endure. That's the core of Pachinko, the novel by Korean-American author Min Jin Lee. It's been adapted into an Apple TV miniseries. Pachinko follows a young woman named Sunja, who grows up in Korea during Japanese colonization. When she gets pregnant, she's forced to leave her homeland and start over in Japan. Her journey unfolds into an epic family saga that spans three generations. This year, we've seen projects that feature Asian-American and Pacific Islander creators and characters, from Apple TV's Pachinko to Disney and Pixar's Turning Red. May May, breakfast is ready. Coming. It's gonna be me. Everything okay? I'm a gross red monster. Don't look at me. Stay back. It's happened already. What did you say? She might be hurt. May our ancestors had a mystical connection with red pandas. Are you kidding me? This little quirk runs in our family. But even with all these stories about the Asian diaspora, the entertainment industry, and the projects it greenlights remain overwhelmingly white. After the break, we'll get into the past, present, and future of Asian diaspora stories on screen. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. Remember to join future conversations. Download our 1A Vox Pop app and leave us a voicemail. Let's jump into the conversation. I spoke earlier with producer and screenwriter Sue Hugh. She's the showrunner of Pachinko. I started by asking her about how her own life and family history played a role in the adaptation. It was crucial. So much of the power of this book is unpacking my family's history, my country's history, my history here in America as well. Um, it was a profound learning experience because some of this history I was not familiar with before I tackled the show. So to say that this show is about rediscovering myself, I think is an understatement. What did you discover in the process? I didn't realize just how much of that past still hangs in my bones. And what I mean by that is when I think about what my parents went through as immigrants in this country, and I think about myself navigating who I am as a Korean American, the foundations are found in someone like Sunja. And to make those connection points was, was very powerful. When I think about family histories, there are the parts of the family story that get shared, and then there are the parts that, that are not shared. What did you learn about your family and about your yourself that was uncovered in this process that, that you hadn't really known before? That's such a great way of asking this question because it's about that, those negative spaces that we don't talk about in families that become just as crucial as what we do talk about. And so much I realize about their hopes, my parents' hopes and dreams for me, right, comes from what they experienced in Korea. So much of that vigilance that they have for me uh, 
when I was growing up, I didn't quite understand it. I did. I thought their hopes and dreams were more of a burden on me. Uh, and that sense of expectation felt sometimes just impossible to meet. And now when I think about, you know, the sunjas of the world, you realize that those hopes and dreams are, is their form of protection because they've seen so much historically. Um, it really makes you cherish your parents. Pachinko spans over 100 years of family history. The book is almost 500 pages long. What kinds of narrative and visual decisions did you weigh while adapting the story? Well, I went back to the films I loved growing up, these films that I feel we don't make anymore. I went back to the epics, you know, Lawrence of Arabia, Bridges of River Kwai, Godfather. And I remember all these miniseries I watched as a kid with my family, miniseries, Roots, War and Remembrance. We don't make that kind of TV show either. And what I, what I wanted to go back to was big thematic storytelling, stories that had something to say, shows that had something to say, that showed characters that weren't just superheroes, but showed ordinary everyday life, stories of indomitable people making do with the world they were given. And so how does that then translate into the visual representation of Pachinko on on the small screen? I really wanted to redefine what an epic looked like and working with these two brilliant directors, Kogonada and Justin, we all know the language of epics, you know, those big wide vistas, soaring aerial shots and our show has them beautifully done. At the same time, the big challenge was how do you make the face feel epic? Because in each of our characters faces, you see the stories of where they've been and where they're going. So we always wanted to balance the big and the small, in order to render this epic story. Time magazine called the series, quote, one of the best multilingual shows ever, because the story is told in three languages, Korean, Japanese, and English. Why is that element of this story so important? Language defines a huge part of who we are. And if you strip that of this show, if you strip that up from our characters, you would not know who they were. This would make no sense. It's also the story of colonialization. It's a story of how history has impacted everyday people. So when we hear a character switch from Korean to Japanese, that tells you so much about that character. Or when you hear the accent of one character fall away because the original language is being lost, that tells you a lot about that character. So not only is it just the specificity of the language the character speaks, but it's how the character speaks that language. Together, those two really do create our show. What challenges, if any, did that multilingual aspect of the series present for you in terms of finding a platform for the show? So this is probably the most heartening thing of where we are now. When we pitched this show to all the networks, that question of language came up in every single pitch. And it was something that I had expected to be uh, a, a fraught conversation, to be honest. And I said from the very beginning, there is no compromise on this. This language will be told in the story in the language of the characters. And to the credit of every single network, they all said, understood, we get it. One thing I will say that's interesting, and I'm so curious how this show plays in Korea and Japan, something that Western audiences don't get in the subtitles is dialect. And that is something I haven't been able to figure out. So we know when a character switches from English, Japanese, and Korean. Not only is it built into the audio component, but also the subtitle component. But the one thing that is not built in is learning which dialects they speak, because that is also such a huge part of their history. So, for example, Solomon's 
can code switch between Kansai dialect, which is in Osaka, and he can code switch to standard dialect, which is the dialect in Tokyo. That is something most Western audiences will never pick up. Um, and it just shows the complication of the platform that we have. Our technology is not yet there to be able to convey that to the audience. So in some ways, when you're in Japan and you're in Korea and you can understand the language itself, they pick it, they're going to pick up these characters slightly differently than those who don't understand those languages. Well, and just contextualize this a little bit more for us, for people who haven't read the book or and haven't had access to the show yet, the character you just mentioned, Salman, why why are those switches in language so important for his character? So Tokyo dialects, the standard dialect is considered the higher class dialect in some ways. You know, just like we have in America where people make assumptions of you if you have a Southern dialect. I grew up with a Maryland dialect and, you know, I used to be asked, where are you from? Um, people read a lot into you based on how you speak. And once you move to the big city, and this is such a universal thing, you know, small town boy, although Osaka is not a small town, but that narrative moves to the big city and assimilates. That's so important to Solomon's fabric. Well, you recently launched the Thousand Miles Project. It's an incubator program for writers who want to tell stories about the Asian and Pacific Islander diaspora. Tell us more about the program and how it works. So this was one of the amazing privileges I've been able to uh, have with by signing with UCP, the cable arm of Universal. And together we said, let's also try to put this incubator program that allows to bring in more voices that we don't normally hear from. And it comes from my experience growing up. I wanted to be a filmmaker very early in my life. Um, I had been watching a lot of movies. I was around 12 years old. But from being from Towson, Maryland, the idea of Hollywood filmmaking was like going to the moon. It just felt so impossible. I didn't even know then that screenwriters was a job. I didn't know that it was different from a director. It was all just one big, a hazy process. And as I've been making my way through the industry and I've been mentored through the years, I realized so much of it is about access and it's about information. And if we're able to give filmmakers and storytellers, both information and access, then maybe one other person can come through that door, two other people can come through that door, three other people can come through that door. Um, I think the goal is just to demystify Hollywood and make it a little bit more of a warm, accepting place. And in the absence of that warm and accepting place, what do you think gets lost when these stories aren't told? I think if you look at the world we have now with what the violence against Asian Americans that's happening in this country and also seeing history repeat itself all the world over, it's, it's, it's a familiar adage. I'm not saying something original, but the more we forget the past, the more we're, we're in danger of repeating it. I think people have to see Asian Americans as humans. People have to see us as, as those who belong in this country just as much as anyone else. And the more representation we have of people, all walks of life, whether it's, you know, it doesn't need to just be Asian American. We need to show diverse voices and diverse representation so that people know that we're all connected by a human texture. I'm thinking about your personal connection to this story and the work you've done to bring it to television I'm curious what you would tell your your grandparents or, or your great grandparents about about what you do. Oh, that's a great question. I mean, yeah, I think 
you know, if I had that time machine and I was able to take Pachinko back to them, I, I think the powerful message is your life mattered, right? That even though it's interesting, when you think about family sagas, you think about great family sagas of people like the Rockefellers and the Kennedys, right? But to be able to say that everyday families, ordinary families, have just as much of a heroic lens as these great people of history, I just, I can't imagine what they would say. I think it would be really, I think it'd be really emotional and vindicating. That's producer and screenwriter Sue Hugh. She's the showrunner of Pachinko. Coming up, we zoom out and talk about the past, present, and future of Asian and Asian American stories on screen. A reminder to have your questions answered on future topics or just to let us know what you think. Tweet us at 1A. Let's get back into the conversation. Well, joining us now is journalist Jeff Yang. He's the co-author of a new book called Rise, a pop history of Asian America from the 90s to now. His fellow authors are blogger Phil Yu and film director Philip Wong. Jeff, welcome back to the program. Thank you so much for having me. Also with us is Nancy Wong Yoon. She's an associate professor of sociology at Biola University in Southern California. She's also the author of Real Inequality, Hollywood Actors and Racism. Nancy, it's great to have you back. So great to be here. Now, your new book, Rise, chronicles Asian American contributions to pop culture uh, since the 90s. Why did you feel it was important to create this kind of catalog right now? <laughs> catalog is right. I mean, we're talking about 500 pages in which we look at every aspect of uh, the emergence of Asian Americans, all the way from uh, the insanity, right? The, uh, the Jeremy Lin moment that we all sort of celebrated together uh, back in time to things like the Joy Luck Club and Better Luck Tomorrow and other movies and, uh, and, and books and, you know, musical moments that really shaped us. For us, it was important to fill in that donut. Uh, the 30 years of the 90s to the 2000s really were a forging ground for the sense of a common, you know, uh, space in which Asian Americans could exist. And in so many different ways, the challenge for Asian Americans has been being able to take up space, being able to tell our own stories. So those three decades uh, essentially were the time in which we found our voice. And telling the book, uh, putting this book together in this way, uh, in some ways explains to people that, yes, we have been here all along. Maybe you just haven't been paying attention. Hmm. You know, Nancy, according to the Center for the Study of Hate and Extremism, anti-Asian hate crimes increased by 339% last year compared to 2020. How how does pop culture help? I don't want to say push back on those, on those uh, numbers, but perhaps shift the way we think and, and talk about this issue? Yeah, in my research on um, Hollywood films, top 100 films from 2007 to 2019, there were 1,300 films, right, in that time. Only six were led by Asian women, right? So, and and only 44 actually had Asian and Pacific Islander leads. So it's very small. And when you have 
invisibility and erasure of a population and lack of uh, humanized characters, right? We're just background characters. We found that 25% of Asian Pacific Islander characters died by the end of the films. And so there, there is a, I mean, it's, it's hard to say it's one-to-one, but it certainly reinforces, I think, stereotypes existent in society, especially kind of the foreign threat, you know, stereotype that really hurts Asians and, and contributes to, I think, a general sentiment that Asians are, um, don't belong and that they are, um, threats and disease and all these horrible stereotypes that aren't true, but because we don't have positive representations and human complex representations, there's nothing to kind of combat that, right? People just continue to go about their their racist ideas without any kind of um, just uh, enough stories to to make it that, you know, Asians are, are, are part of this American fabric, like Rise, you know, represents right this book is showing that we've been here we've been part of culture we've we've been essential to the american fabric and social psychological studies show that when you don't have direct contact with people like asian americans then you draw your ideas about them from media mm-hmm. right so media does have a huge impact when people don't know any asians in real life well i want to turn to some some pivotal moment in in pop culture history, starting with 1993. That's the year the the movie The Joy Luck Club was released, and it was based on a novel by the same name. And here's a clip from the movie starring Ming-Na Wen as June and her mother, played by Ki Yu-Chin. I'm just sorry that you got stuck with such a loser, that I've always been so disappointing. What do you mean disappoint? Piano? Everything. My grades, my job... Not getting married. Everything you expected of me. Not expect anything. Never expect. Only hope. Only hoping best for you. It's not wrong to hope. No. Well, it hurts. Because every time you hope for something I couldn't deliver, it hurt. Nancy, first, just give us a brief synopsis of the Joy Light Club. Oh goodness! It's an epic about uh, Chinese American women, played by you know various uh, East and Southeast Asian women, and it's really gosh! It was the first time I ever saw myself. It was uh, you know a story about Im- immigrants, their stories back home, and then as we heard in the clip, the the daughters and the kind of effects of that hope placed on U.S. born and raised daughters. And, oh, gosh, when I saw this, I just thought, wow, this is this is me up there because I, I myself am a young immigrant. And that was the first time I ever realized that I didn't see myself very often because, you know, it's like you don't realize what you're missing until you actually see it. So that was that was me in high school. And I just I love the book. I love the movie. So, so important for for representation of Asian-Americans. I remember watching the film the first time and, and just the mother daughter relationships um, how it dealt with generational trauma. It's 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 so. I, I love the film. I revisit it um, <laughs> probably a couple times a year. But Jeff, why do you think it was such a pivotal film? Well, for all of us who also disappointed our parents, <laughs> it, it gave us something to cling to, uh, an opportunity for reconciliation, at least in our minds. No, I, honestly, it it was the first time I think for a lot of people in America that they saw a story like this, a story that uh, was about. Uh, intrinsically about Asian Americans on on screen in a big Hollywood movie. And it wasn't the first Asian American movie by any means. It certainly wasn't the last, but it was the first one that was kind of signaling that it was possible to uh, put 
you know, lots of Asians on screen, not just one, right? <laughs> uh, make them the center of the screen and tell a story that felt like it couldn't have been told any other way. Uh, that is to say, the Asianness of the story was intrinsically part of the story. And I think that it marked in many ways, the beginning of, of something really, really significant in the way that uh, people started to relate to our community, our culture, uh, our sense of belonging in America. Let's stick with the 90s for a minute and talk about another major film. That was, of course, from Disney's 1998 film Mulan. It was made into a live-action movie in 2020. Nancy, this was Disney's first Asian heroine, but what else was significant about Mulan, particularly in the context of other kids' movies at the time? Well, she was strong. I think that was, uh, I know a lot of Asian American and just girls, I think in general, seeing a Disney quote unquote princess that's not actually being saved, but is actually saving China. That was super significant. And and I think that, um, you know, I, I know a lot of young Asian American girls growing up at that time, like that was their first time seeing themselves. Mm-hmm. Jeff, what about for you? You know, this is my experience coming out of the theater, right? I mean, to Nancy's point, this is a Disney princess, I think the first one, who really kicked ass. And there were kids, boy kids, right, who were coming out of the theater just shouting, uh, crossing swords with one another and saying, I want to be Mulan. <laughs> and I was, I mean, I wasn't a kid by the time I, I saw it, but I felt the same way. There was a sense in which Mulan expanded the reference frame, not just for young Asian women, but I think for all of us to cross that barrier, project ourselves into somebody and feel like they were our superhero. And I I think that's one of the things that we are still having a conversation about today. There are people who feel like the only way in which you can feel like you can project yourself into a character is if it somehow gives you a foothold, right? Um, Well, the truth is, if you're not white and not male, <laughs> um, not straight, maybe, uh, you've been forced to embrace characters who are very much different from yourself throughout your life. Like back in the 90s with Mulan, uh, there is a way to actually cross that gap. And we have to reinforce the fact that as much as we want to see our reflections, that's a lot about what we're doing with, you know, with Rise, saying that that's important. We can do more. Well, I want to turn to another film both of you wanted to talk about. This is the 2002 crime drama Better Luck Tomorrow, starring Perry Shen, Jason Tobin, uh, Sung Kong, Roger Fan, and John Cho. Tetrahydrocannabinol. I didn't ask a question. Sorry. Were we competitive? Tokyo, Japan. A little. Can't wait to go to college, man. All that studying finally pays off and you get to leave this hellhole. Were we bored? We will see a movie. The Amoeba. To death. Do this by tomorrow, you get a 50. What? You don't have to play by the rules. We can make our own. It's easy money. It'll be fun. We're putting the laws of supply and demand into practice. And then it's snowball. You think you can break in? There's gonna be a lot of money involved. Our straight A's were our alibis. As long as our grades were there, we were trusted. You can get away with anything, don't you? Oh, yeah, if you're clever enough. Woo! Okay, Jeff, give us a little backstory on Better Luck Tomorrow. What is it about? <laughs> So Better Look Tomorrow is actually inspired by a true story uh, about a group of young Asian-American high schoolers, essentially, who 
basically start to do crimes <laughs> and it goes, it goes terribly awry. They, uh, they have this sort of, you know, ring in which they're like selling drugs and doing other stuff. And one, one of them turns on them and they turn on him and, you know, tragedy ensues. But I think what is really remarkable about this movie, and this is a movie that began as an indie film by Justin Lin, but was picked up by MTV, became kind of the first uh, Asian American film to cut across the expectation set of what Asian films could look like, right? It was about Asian Americans going very, very bad. Uh, and it didn't celebrate them so much as just give them a story that made them understandable. Mm -hmm. Humanizing criminals is something Hollywood's done forever, but we just really haven't seen that with Asian Americans. <laughs> okay, I want to turn now to a little bit of comedy. I'm really glad you're here. We've had a rough night. You know the show Doogie Howser, MD? Yeah, it's a great show. God, I love that show. Doogie. <laughs> Neil Patrick Harris stole my car tonight. Hey, NPH wouldn't do that, all right? Give me some ID. Well, excuse me, how can you give him a ticket for jaywalking? It's 2.30 in the morning and there's like, there's not a car around here. It's like he was causing trouble. Kumar, shut up. That's not the kind of tone you want to use in a cop who can bust your Bust my dick, Kumar. Bust your what kind of name is that anyhow, huh? Kumar. What is that, like five O's or two U's? No, it's actually one U. Yeah, bullshit. They're having a good old American names like Dave or Jim, you know? Harold. Harold. Are you kidding? Well, that's a great name. Let me take care of you this. You should be proud of that name, son. As you were, ladies. That was from the first of the Harold and Kumar movies, 2004's Harold and Kumar Go to White Castle, starring John Cho and Cal Penn. Nancy, for, for people who haven't seen these movies, who are Harold and Kumar? Oh my goodness, they are stoners. <laughs> this is kind of the first Asian American, or not the first, I would say, you know, Cheech and Chong, right? We have we have a history of that, but this one I think very much gets at the fact that, yeah, that these are Asian American dude bros, I guess. <laughs> without the whiteness and i don't know it's just such a fun series really silly um, um but also i think yeah another side of asian america jeff why does the duo stand out to you because they they go on these sort of epic adventures um but there's there's a friendship that's at the core of this relationship well, I mean, first I would say that uh, Better Luck Tomorrow walked so that Harold and Kumar could run. <laughs> this is a duo which is consisting of an uh, Indian-American and a Korean-American, uh, and it works, right? I mean, we've seen so many buddy movies in the past, but very rarely ones in which both buddies are people of color, much less Asian-American. Uh, but they are they are two you know normal guys maybe not wholly normal but you know we'll accept that uh who are just looking for nothing more than the munchies getting filled they want a, a, a burger at white castle and everything happens to them from there right it's like such a classic trope for a movie like it's a road movie but it has our faces in it and it is delirious and hilarious and super bizarre and all of it just comes together in such a way that you, if you want to forget, you can forget that they're Asian Americans. But for those who are, of us who are Asian American, we can't forget because they're staring at us on the screen and we're saying, oh my gosh, I knew kids like this in my own college. I maybe was a kid like that in my own college. <laughs> well, Nancy, there's, there's the lack of AAPI stories being told and then there's the other issue of who's telling the stories. We have a long history of white directors casting white actors to play Asian characters, and, and those portrayals are often offensive. And you've written a lot about the history of yellowface. How has that shown up over the last century or so? 
Oh gosh. Well, yellow face, uh, you know, is very longstanding. The very first uh, representations of Asians were in yellow face, right? I think 1913, Madame Butterfly, Mary Pickford played a geisha and, and very much so that it's now kind of evolved to what's called white washed, right? We know that Scarlett Johansson with Ghost in the Shell played a Japanese character. And I think that, you know, that it's been a long time of, I think, people thinking of Asian-ness as like a costume you can put on. Like we think about Halloween, people dressing up like ninjas and geishas. And it's hard. It's kind of like, you know, we want our our bodies, our voices. But, you know, the I mean, there's I think there's been more Asian characters played by white women who won Oscars than actually Asian women, right? The Best Actress uh, award that went to Louise Rayner for Olan um, in, gosh, it was like the 1930s. And she won Best Actress for playing a Chinese woman, right? And so this is this is a real um, problem because it's not just an erasure and also uh, stereotyping, but it's taking away roles from actual Asian actors. I wonder, Nancy, if you see a connection between Yellowface and and the some of the offensive stereotypes that were presented and, and continue to be presented on screen, and that flattening you talked about, the flattening of the diaspora, the flattening of ethnicities, or, or sort of rolling them all up into this sort of one generic Asian idea. Yeah, absolutely. I think about all the representations of um, East Asian, Southeast Asian, like the costuming, it all gets mixed up because it's all through kind of the white lens of Orientalism. So then everybody just gets lumped up. And so, yeah, it's hard to quote unquote tell the difference when literally Hollywood is representing us all lumped into one. I think about like the King and I, where, you know, it's like supposed to be Thailand, but then there's all sorts of just kind of intermixing of, of things that have come from representations of Chinese culture. And so, yeah, and I think that, you know, when when we think about the accent, the, the funny Asian accent, that actually comes out of yellow face, right? White actors imagining what Asians sound like and making up these accents. And I know that then Asian actors, actual Asian American actors, having to reproduce those same accents when they're asking, can you do this with an accent? They're not thinking it actually an authentic, you know, immigrant accent. They are thinking about the, the kind of century of, you know, of, of yellow face of actors, you know, doing this kind of mock Chinese or mock Asian. Well, I want to get to one more piece of, of recent pop culture, and that's the 2015 sitcom Fresh Off the Boat, uh, starring Randall Park, Constance Wu, Hudson Yang, Forrest Wheeler, Ian Chen, and Lucille Song. Who on bought into the American dream? I don't know why we have to move. So your father can own a cowboy restaurant. It's called Cattleman's Ranch Steakhouse, and I've grown to love it like the daughter we wished Evan had been. This is why we left our family and friends. Exactly. This is why we left everything we know to come to a place where we know nothing and where the humidity is not good for my hair. This is my mom. My dad's American dream was her nightmare. Where are all the customers? There is hardly anyone here, and that table is only drinking water. Hey, why you not drink beer? Me? My American dream was to fit in. Why do all your shirts have black men on them? It's notorious B.I.G. You in the B.I.G? Yeah, man. Come sit with us. Oh, what is this? It's Chinese food. Get it out of here. Ying Ming's eating worms. I need white people lunch. Now, Jeff, you're you're smiling. You're you're beaming. In fact, people can't see can't see the zoom <laughs> image I see. But your son Hudson plays the lead in this series. Eddie, what was his experience like on the show? Well, it's really kind of remarkable because Fresh Off the Boat was in many ways the pivot around which a lot of the change in Hollywood we've seen 
uh, embracing new and different kinds of Asian American stories began. And my son, Hudson Yang, was unaccountably out of the blue cast as the lead kid, Eddie Huang, in this story of this Asian American family that moves to Orlando, Florida, fish out of water. Uh, and Hudson had to kind of live in the middle of, of this incredible uh, hurricane in some ways of, of trying to make this show work in a time when people did not believe Asian American stories could work on TV. Uh, for him, it was really an experience of twofold, learning about why being an Asian American on network TV was so mind-blowingly important, uh, but also going back to the 1990s, right? Uh, learning about things like Walkman and, and VHSs and <laughs> antiques like that that I grew up with, but for him were just as alien and weird as this idea that being Asian could be something uh, uncomfortable and that you weren't proud about. So yeah, you know, for me, seeing that change was one of the things that really made this book so special for me, being able to document what happened from then till now as I saw it literally through the eyes in some ways of, of my teenage son. Now, Nancy, this was the first network TV sitcom in the U.S. to feature an Asian-American family in over 20 years. I mean, that's, that's pretty staggering. What, do you, what did the show mean to you and, and what do you think it meant to viewers? It was, you know, seeing families on screen, that is a part of, you know, the family sitcom has been part of kind of U.S. TV for a very long time, right? You invite families into your family, into your home, right? And so it's very intimate in that way. And I think that having an Asian American family, a Taiwanese American family was, uh, was very significant in that we can acknowledge that there are also part of the American family, you know, iconic um, sitcom. And I think that, uh, for so many people, like for, for my family as well, you know, for my kids, like seeing themselves represented growing up, like I watched the Cosby show growing up because I didn't have, you know, Asian American families um, to, to watch. I, but I wanted something that was that I could relate to. And I, and I, you know, I watched black families. And I think that for, you know, for Asian Americans to be able to see themselves, for non-Asians to be able to see Asian American families as part of kind of the, you know, the, the prime time, it's, it's it's inclusion, you know, it's inclusion. I want to know what stories you hope to see on the, on the big screen and small screen in the future. Oh, gosh, we need more um, action films that aren't kung fu. <laughs> <laughs> I want to see I want to see more historic dramas. Right. We need more. We have we're part of history and we're not seeing those those historic dramas um, more rom-coms, because that's what I like. <laughs> just, you know, all the things that we enjoy, just the full spectrum. As many stories out there we you know that exist, we need those told. And Jeff? Uh, I want to see more stories that are intersectional, that show different facets of how our community intersects with other communities. Uh, Fresh Off the Boat was about Asian and Black culture intersecting. And I think there's so much more to tell in that space. That's journalist Jeff Yang. He's the co-author of a new book called Rise, a pop history of Asian America from the 90s to now. Also with us, Nancy Wong Yoon. She's an associate professor of sociology at Biola University and the author of Real Inequality, Hollywood Actors and Racism. Nancy, Jeff, thanks for speaking with us. Today's producer was Catherine Fink. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening. We'll talk more soon. This is 1A.